The Daily Princetonian, I'm Theo Wells Spackman. You're listening to Daybreak. Today, we cover the Princeton and Slavery Project, an assault at a protest in Palmer Square relating to the conflict in Israel and Palestine, the U.S. Department of Education's sanctions on Grand Canyon University, and an attack on a refugee camp in Gaza. It's Wednesday, November 1st. I sat down with news contributors Abby Leibowitz and Ethan Caldwell to discuss the Princeton and Slavery Project. Hi, I'm Ethan. I'm a first year and I'm a news contributor for the Prince. I'm Abby. I'm a sophomore and I am a news staff writer for the Prince. Uh, we gather you've been looking into the Princeton and Slavery Project a fair bit. Um, could you just give us a quick rundown of the basics of what that organization is? Sure, yeah. So the project started back in 2013 with Professor Martha Sandweiss um, as part of an archives class that looked into exploring the role of slavery in the nation's founding and the complex nature of the relationship between the university and slavery over time. And it expanded its reach from there. Uh, The professor, she recruited postdoc fellows and undergraduate students, and ultimately, 10 years in the making, it has now become a fully digital history project where all of the research that they have found is now published online in their totally accessible website at the Princeton and Slavery Project. And so this is sort of the initial vision come to fruition. I also gathered that there is like a fair amount of like kind of Jersey specific background in in this kind of work. I guess, Abby, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's pretty interesting because New Jersey was the last state in the North to abolish slavery and is often called the slave state of the North. This particularly came up this year because there's been a New Jersey Reparations Council that has been founded by um, a nonprofit. There's uh, a bill in the legislature that has been stalled around reparations, which have happened in other states. And so, yeah, it's interesting to think about New Jersey as as a state that still grapples with that uh, pretty fraught history. So coming back to the Princeton and Slavery Project, what kinds of things have they been doing kind of more recently? What sort of research have they been doing like on campus and elsewhere? Yeah, so a lot of the more recent work put into the project has been making it fully accessible online in this digital form, because one of the initial visions was to be able to make this information accessible, not just to find it, but to be able to share it with others, with students, with other faculty, and just with the country as a whole to grapple with this uh, this complex history. Um, but some of the findings uh, that the current leader of the project, Professor Tara Hunter, mentioned in her interview, uh, included the fact that the first nine presidents on campus owned slaves and five of them lived in the McLean house. And so often the first face that you would meet coming to campus would be that of the slave who opened the door for you at the president's house. And just trying to grapple with the fact um, about those formative years in the university's history and what it meant for the university then, but what it still means today and how we can address that. Um, I would assume that like similar things are happening at other kind of peer institutions. Is that what you've kind of gathered? Yeah, it's particularly interesting that at at some other peer institutions, this project was initiated at the top. Um, At Brown, their president initiated a similar project exploring the history of slavery and and the university. Here, it's faculty-driven. It's driven by um, faculty research, but it's never been adopted in any institutional manner. To add on to that, I think when we interviewed Professor Hunter, she seemed especially proud that in the singularity of the project at Princeton, being entirely faculty initiated in that it didn't start from 
the administration and work its way down from there, but rather it started as a collective of professors and students and sort of worked its way up from there. And so I think that has allowed it, in her view, to start accessible to the student body and continue to be that way. And I think from what we gather, she views this as a, a healthy relationship between the university and the project that provides it with the resources it needs to grow, but also with the freedom to explore the topics and issues that it needs to to get this information out there. Is there anything else either of you wanted to add about anything people should know about this? Just that I encourage everyone to, you know, browse the Princeton and Slavery Project and be engaged with that history. The project is only as successful as we students and faculty make it. And so I think because it's so accessible in this digital version, it's sort of calling to us to engage with it and learn this information ourselves. The information is out there now, and it's sort of up to us to learn it and spread it ourselves too. Thank you both so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. In campus news, a Princeton University staff member assaulted an undergraduate student at a pro-Palestine protest in Palmer Square on Saturday. Between 100 and 200 individuals were gathered as protesters advocated for a ceasefire in Gaza. The student was filming a staff member, later identified as Irina Aronovich, as general supervisor of the Diagnostic Lab in Molecular Biology, who was verbally abusing protesters. Aronovich grabbed the student's phone, pulling their hair in the process. A video of the incident has been circulated widely on social media, including one Instagram account with over 900,000 followers. In national news, the U.S. Department of Education has fined Grand Canyon University, based in Phoenix, Arizona, a total of $37.7 million for advertising false tuition costs to its doctoral students. GCU has since denied the claims, saying that they will, quote, take all measures necessary to defend itself from these false accusations, unquote. Since 2018, the institution has been taking legal action against the U.S. Department of Education in an attempt to gain nonprofit status. Yesterday's fine is part of a concerted effort from the Biden administration to crack down on malpractice connected to federal student loans. In international news, the Israeli Defense Forces carried out an airstrike on the Jabalia refugee camp in Gaza yesterday as its ground forces pushed toward Gaza City. The IDF has said that the attack killed Hamas battalion commander Ibrahim Biari. A local hospital in Gaza and the Palestine Red Crescent estimated that between 25 and 50 civilians were killed in the attack. Meanwhile, US officials also said that a ballistic missile shot down by Israel yesterday was fired by Yemen's Houthi government, which is supported by Iran. This act of aggression fuels fears of conflict spreading beyond Israel and Palestine. United States Secretary of State Anthony Blinken warned Iran and its allies earlier this week that the U.S. would respond swiftly to aggression against U.S. military bases in the Middle East. Today, expect a high of 50 degrees and a low of 29 degrees Fahrenheit, chilly and partly cloudy. That's all for Daybreak Today. Today's episode was written by Zach Lee and me, sound engineered by Isabel Jacobson, and produced under the 147th Managing Board of The Prince. Our theme was composed by Ed Horan, class of 22. For The Daily Princetonian, I'm Theo Wells-Spackman. Have a wonderful day.